0: This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Voice is beautiful. Just be careful. Walter Crawford. See, I think it would be something like this. Oh. Nothing? No. My daughter and I are walking through St. Patrick's Cemetery number three. We're still trying to find the Crawford family gravesite, but the name isn't listed in the cemetery's directory. Some of these are so old that you can't even really read the headstones. I can look it up on Google Maps. It doesn't, uh, she said that she looked in the computer and she couldn't find it. I don't think it's going to be big, so let's look down here. This is a challenge because there are tombs that look like mini houses, and all the grave sites are slightly raised. I was a little concerned before our trip because I had read that robbers like to hide in between the tombs and ambush visitors in some of the cemeteries. But St. Patrick's number three felt very safe. Hey Q, come with me. I think I know where he is. Where? He died in 58. Yes. He died in Yes. Drink? So based on that... I just don't think any of these, a lot of these seem too ornate for the Crawfords. This looks like something, this could be a possibility. I mean, I, I think it would be this kind. It's very simple. We're sort of running out of time. In March of 1912... Newspapers across the country assigned suspected serial killer Annie Crawford numerous unsavory nicknames. Reporters called her a dope fiend, the morphine missionary, and a modern Lucretia Borgia. I hadn't heard that last one before, so I researched it. Lucretia Borgia was a beautiful, stoic noblewoman and a politician in 16th century Spain who has been cast in history as a femme fatale. Lucrezia allegedly had a hollow ring that she used to secretly poison rivals with arsenic during parties. I asked poison expert Dr. Neil Bradbury about the Borgia's family reputation. Tell me about the Borgia family. This is Spain, right?
1: This is Spain. Um, They were a family in Renaissance Europe. The patriarch of the family eventually became Pope, Pope Rodrigo. They eliminated many of their compatriots with arsenic. One of the things that was true at the time was that if an individual died, then their wealth automatically went back to the Pope. So the Pope would go around making an individual a bishop, the bishop would accumulate lots of wealth, then he would be invited to the Borgias for a party, would be killed off and then the pope would accumulate all the bishop's riches and several people were killed uh, that way.
0: That's terrible, and the Borgias, including Lucrezia, allegedly used arsenic like many others did later in history.
1: It's an old poison and one that has a long history. Arsenic's been known as a poison, obviously, for many, many years, even going back into the early times. It's been known for many thousands of years, probably.
0: So Lucrezia Borgia killed for wealth and power. But did Annie Crawford kill four members of her own family for money? In 1912, New Orleans D.A. Sinclair Adams said yes. To Sinclair, there was no other logical motive. A reminder of the amount of money we're talking about with these life insurance policies. Mary Agnes had $300. Emma, her mother, had about $300 also. Her father, Walter, had an estate of $1,000. dollars And Elise had a $300 policy, plus there was that $45 paycheck. And Annie collected all of that money. Over 14 months, she had $1,045, which is more than $30,000 today. And this all was supposed to be split between the surviving relatives, who were Annie and Gertrude and Emma. $30,000. People have killed for far less. Investigators had interviewed members of the Crawford family. Annie's uncle, Robert Crawford, didn't believe that Annie murdered Elise. He couldn't imagine a woman in his family would do that. But his wife, Aunt Mary, told the police that Annie had delayed calling the doctor and that she seemed dismissive of Elise's symptoms. Author Alan Gotrow says the district attorney was methodical with his investigation into Annie's scams.
2: So they start to see motive. Did Elise have a life insurance policy? Wasn't quite sure. But when we look at her checking account, her checking account had been drained.
0: Witnesses began to take the stand on Monday, March 11th, 1912, at the courthouse in New Orleans, including Annie's aunt and her sister Gertrude. The district attorney believed that Annie spent all of the insurance money on clothes, though it's not clear where he got that idea. As I mentioned earlier, Annie was a dowdy dresser. She didn't keep up with the latest expensive fashions. I think he just couldn't figure out where all of the money went. After reading the testimony, historian Terrence Fitzmorris disagrees with the prosecutor.
3: Well, according to the testimony from Annie's older sister, The money was spent on funerals.
0: Hmm.
3: And considering the cost of funerals, even in 1911 and 12, insurance money barely paid for funerals.
0: More about funeral expenses a bit later. At least part of that life insurance money went to the funerals. And of course, the life insurance from the parents and Mary Agnes were split between the surviving sisters. It's not that much money in the end. The press described Annie Crawford as pale and frail and a woman of small stature. She appeared to be more like a prim and self-conscious schoolteacher than a person with criminal inclinations. And she looked like a schoolteacher in mourning. You said she wore all black in a veil. Is that right? During she her-
2: wore all black in a veil during the trial.
0: The whole time? And
2: the whole time. Well, yeah, most of the time. Uh, you saw the picture of her, uh, you know, from the newspaper. She That was definitely a black dress. I, I think she played the mourning card, let's put it that way, uh, when she went to trial. Hopefully to get sympathy from the jury. Maybe that was her show of remorse by, uh, you know, wearing a black dress.
0: So did the prosecutor go after her? And what was the reaction of her defense attorney? Uh,
2: the prosecution didn't go after her as aggressively as, a, as one would think. And when Lionel Adams saw this, it was his opportunity to convince the jury that, hey, look, okay, so she made a mistake. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't premeditated.
0: Annie sat stoically at the defense table, never making eye contact with anyone sitting behind her. She occasionally placed a black fan across her face, as if hiding from the audience. She seemed almost coy. Annie refused to show any emotion as everyone in the packed courthouse gawked. The newspaper reporters in New Orleans were relentless and misogynistic, as you could guess. One paper labeled her the poison queen while they were still in the middle of the trial.
3: There was a reference to a newspaper article in the New Orleans item, which was a scurrilous rag in the early part of the 20th century. And it had a a little story in it. And it talked about the one person who could shed some light on Annie Crawford was dead and it was her mother. And did the mother really know what moral feelings Annie had, if ever she had any? And it was a horrible, vicious depiction without any evidence at all of this.
0: So the press was convicting her before the trial was even over, even in the death of her own
3: mother. It was a terrible thing. And she sued them for that. She sued the New Orleans item because they had depicted her in such a fashion that she was a moral monster. And this stemmed from also their depiction of her as being anything but attractive, you know, that no man would possibly look at Annie Crawford more than once. You know, she was a spinster and an old maid even before she was 30 years old. Retired
0: law school professor Linda Frost says that there is an inherent bias in the criminal justice system for many defendants.
4: I think it's a risk really with criminal justice writ large, that we bring our own impressions and biases to the process. This is not a sanitized environment that isn't influenced by our beliefs and suppositions and prejudices about the world in general. So sure, people's beliefs on what is possible for a woman to do and what isn't would affect things just as we bring our our biases about racial inclinations and people of education Education, people with lower levels of education, all of those things come together to influence the way people perceive a set of
0: alleged facts. Experts in 1912 constructed a narrative for Annie right out of Hollywood. One criminologist said, quote, The girl was such a victim of morphine that she worshipped the drug with a sort of fanatical reverence, a love so great that she wanted everyone to share it with her. Framing Annie as a drug addict was certainly the most sensational storyline, and she told the police that she was an addict. I suspect that was to explain why she had morphine with her at home, yet Annie sat calmly in court with no signs that she was on morphine or having withdrawal symptoms. Virtually all observers wondered if she really was an addict. That description seemed off. As the trial continued, the courtroom became very exciting. As Annie sat pensively at the defense table, her attorney and the DA debated each fact loudly, almost violently.
2: These two couldn't stand each other. The prosecuting attorney and Lionel Adams are going at each other constantly. Over what? They're arguing over every little thing. And what happens is, if the defendant gets on the stand, it's almost an assured conviction because the prosecution gets free reign.
0: But the defense decided to chance it, and they put Annie on the stand. Annie sat quietly in the witness chair, as steady as ever. She removed her veil as the defense attorney began asking questions. She said that yes, she had handled both the morphine tablets and the doctor's medicine at the same time. She intended to take the morphine herself, but to give Elise the other pills from Dr. McGuire, but she made a mistake. Yes, she knew that Elise was an addict. No, she wasn't her supplier. They didn't even like each other. Who knows? Morphine wasn't difficult to buy in 1910, so a magazine could have been Elise's supplier. And remember, she had a job, so she had the money to buy it herself. Elise likely became addicted when the deaths began in her family, said the police but it also could have been earlier. Her life was so troubled. Annie testified that after Elise fell asleep, she flushed the rest of the morphine pills down the toilet. Annie's testimony was brief but effective, which is unusual. Most defendants don't do well on the stand, which is why they don't often take the stand. Annie was calm and confident and composed, all qualities that the male jurors seemed to respect. She appeared to be non-threatening. She made eye contact with everyone. After she finished her testimony, the attorneys continued to call witnesses.
2: Mary gets on the stand, and she gave testimony that indicated she suspected Annie's culpability in the death of her sister. Didn't mention about the parents yet.
0: Then there were more tensions in the courtroom as the DA and the defense attorney started to fight, literally,
2: they start threatening each other back and forth and all hell breaks loose in the courtroom Hmm. and the judge says look you know this isn't going to happen anymore and finally he gains control uh, of the courtroom
0: okay who is next on the witness list
2: Gertrude Crawford takes the stand again and she stated that Annie had forged checks to obtain family money that she did not earn and she insisted that she did not discover that her sister had forged the checks in her name until she was officially accused of murder. So the jury's hearing all of this and they're combining these statements with the fact that she had given Elise the morphine, Mm -hmm. that she uh, was a beneficiary Mm -hmm. of the life insurance policies.
0: That was a lot of money because Elise had money from her parents' and her sister's life insurance.
2: She got it all. But then now, you look at she's writing checks, forging checks as well. So money becomes a very strong motive, too. Now, does the addiction do that to you? You know, who knows?
0: Gertrude said that Annie took checks from Elise's account and Gertrude's own account, signed their names, and withdrew hundreds of dollars. And Gertrude confirmed that she watched Annie give Elise something in a glass the night before she died. And here's the kicker. Annie also had a life insurance policy on Gertrude, and Gertrude told the district attorney that she was afraid of Annie. On the stand, Gertrude said that she never suspected Annie had anything to do with her other sister's death or the deaths of their parents, but Gertrude had said earlier that she was suspicious. So Gertrude was not the most reliable witness. Then the medical examiner took the stand and decided to do something unusual and disturbing to help illustrate something for the jurors. Assistants passed around jars containing pieces of Elise's brain and her spleen to illustrate the damage done by the morphine. It was a gruesome scene. Spectators in the courthouse watched Annie closely as jars moved past her. Not one bit of emotion. And when reporters searched the courthouse for members of the Crawford family, they were disappointed. Unless they were called to the stand, Annie's family chose to stay away from her murder trial.
3: You know, they, they seem to be not wanting to talk about any of this, not wanting to be involved in any of this.
0: So Gertrude and Aunt Mary testified, but everyone else was quiet, like Emma and Uncle Robert.
3: They don't give testimony in any of these cases. They don't, they don't appear in the newspapers. They don't say anything. So I I find them to be uniquely um, missing in action. There's there's something wrong with, with that.
0: There were substantial amounts of victim blaming, and the defense attorney tried to claim that Elise was suicidal because she had given her child up for adoption. The prosecutor had previously ordered Elise's body to be exhumed to examine it for evidence of morphine. That's when they discovered that there were huge amounts in her system. But the defense also took the opportunity to have her examined for their benefit.
3: That's when they brought in their experts who discovered that Elise had had a child prior to about 1906, that she was not a virgin. And that was important evidence for the defense to show that Elise had a child out of wedlock.
0: And the defense attorney, Lionel Adams, put Elise Crawford's character on trial.
2: He stated, quote, "Elise was morose and despondent because of this dark chapter in her life. She had given allegedly given birth to a child that she gave up for adoption."
0: Now there might have been some truth to that. Gertrude said that Elise asked her to come to her room the night before she first became sick. Elise handed Gertrude two precious rings and a necklace that she always wore. Elise told Gertrude that she didn't believe she would be alive much longer. Was she hinting to her sister about a suicide attempt? Or was she suspicious of Annie? Elise had first vomited when she returned home from work Thursday night. Perhaps she was going through morphine withdrawal and asked Annie for pills. Annie's defense attorney brought in character witnesses, including a reverend who had visited her in jail as she awaited trial.
2: There was a a reverend that came in, and he said, and I'm going to quote him, he says, I've seen many criminals in the time that I have been chaplain at the state penitentiary in Baton Rouge. That's Angola. Uh, A criminal is always bitter or sarcastic when approached by anyone, even though he is a friend. Annie Crawford is not such a person. She is always just as polite as though she is entertaining someone in her own home, and her manners are polished. The Annie Crawford I knew is a tender-hearted girl who is prayerful and fears God.
0: Did she confess? She never confessed, even in jail, is that right? Was it? No, she meeting? didn't.
2: She just said she made a mistake.
0: And that was it. She was sorry,
2: mm-hmm. I made a mistake. You know, And there was no real remorse. I mean, she didn't think she did anything wrong.
0: After about two weeks of testimony, the all-male jury debated the facts for about 12 hours behind a locked door. They reviewed the evidence, the life insurance, the supposed new clothes that the defense said no one had actually ever seen. The jurors considered Annie's strange behavior as well as the four mysterious deaths in about a year in one home. They finally summoned
2: the judge. At 1040 on... uh... March 26, 1912, the court reconvened and the jury stood nine to three for acquittal and the minority was holding out for a verdict of murder with capital punishment.
0: The jurors couldn't agree Mm -hmm. and they gave up. It was over. Annie Crawford was released from jail after the jury failed to convict her of murdering her sister Elise. And Terrence Fitzmaurice thinks
3: that the results were probably right. You can see where St. Clair Adams would, would have a case that's circumstantial, you know. But again, the circumstances break down in my, in my estimation because they don't hold up to the, the testimony.
0: Nine of the 12 men believed Annie Crawford when she said she had accidentally poisoned her sister. Was it because the evidence just wasn't strong enough? Probably. Or was it because she was a woman? Maybe. Of course, there are very famous cases of women perhaps getting away with murder. Lizzie Borden went on trial for killing her father and stepmother in 1892 in Fall River, Massachusetts. Lizzie Borden was acquitted because an all-male jury found it hard to fathom that women could be cold-hearted killers. Author Kara Robertson says that the jury was so convinced of Borden's innocence that they sent her a present after the verdict.
5: The jury is unanimous on the first ballot, and they, they actually just sit in the jury room for a while uh, so that they appear reasonably deliberative. They find Lizzie Borden not guilty, and they themselves then you know, head out of the courtroom and go to a bar Where they have a drink because that's they've been um suffering under enforced temperance during the during the trial uh and they have a picture taken of themselves and they they present it to lizzie borden what you know i think if you put those things together that that you'd say that this isn't really a case of reasonable doubt for them this is a this is a case where they were absolutely certain that she was not the murderer or at least they were not prepared to consider the possibility that she was the killer. And this is what
0: Lizzie Borden had in common with Annie Crawford.
5: She's an unmarried daughter engaged in good works who lives at home.
0: Not an ideal murder suspect. The prosecutor, Sinclair Adams, discussed the case with his colleagues. He could put her on trial again, but would he? Trials were costly, and it would be a horrible embarrassment for a politically savvy district attorney to lose once again. I still find it hard to believe that she wasn't convicted. Historian Terrence Fitzmorris isn't surprised at all.
3: Again, in the United States, in the court of law, you must have a reasonable doubt. And if there is no forensic evidence, and the nine men on the jury said that it, there was no forensic evidence to support the circumstantial evidence that the district attorney brought to bear.
0: As we talked about earlier, it was possible, and perhaps even likely, that the deaths in her family were just a string of unfortunate circumstances that might not have been that unusual in the early 1900s. She and her sister spent the majority of the life insurance money on the funerals and their gravesite. To bolster the theory that Annie was innocent, she never confessed to murder, never wavered. But there was a coldness about her that haunted the people who sat near her every day in the trial. How could a woman from a seemingly lovely family be so aloof? Mary Kay McBriar says that serial killer Jane Toppin was also known to be aloof.
5: She said that she probably wouldn't have killed all those people if she had been married with children, because she wouldn't have had time. And she said, I'm, you know, I'm glad you arrested me when you did, otherwise I probably would have killed those, the people who I was staying with too. That's so wild to me.
0: Once Annie Crawford was released from jail, she quickly returned to her aunt and uncle's home on Peters Avenue, packed up her belongings, and vanished from New Orleans. Within a day, she reappeared in Port Arthur, Texas to start a new life with her eldest sister, Emma Leo. Annie moved into the family's home and lived there for much of her life. She helped take care of Emma's children, including Patrick, who was Cecile's husband. Cecile Leo never knew at the time that she had lived for two years with a suspected serial poisoner. Patrick's family just never talked about it. I spoke with Gertrude's family too. They said they didn't even know who the Crawfords were. They had wondered why that name was etched on the family's plot in St. Patrick's Cemetery Number 3. What I wonder is how could Gertrude and Emma ever trust their sister Annie after all of this? Or did those sisters somehow believe Annie was innocent? How was that possible? Annie's niece-in-law, Cecile Leo, has been thinking about that too. Remember, Cecile was married to Emma's son. She called her Mrs. Leo. I can't imagine
4: that Mrs. Leo would feel safe with her taking care of her. Of Edward when Edward was born and when Kitty was born, you know,
0: I, I'd have been I would have been afraid of her. I asked Cecile about Annie's habits. Did they ever suspect that she took drugs of any sort? Did she even drink alcohol? No, she said, and she never suspected Annie of anything like murder. There's no no way
4: that I could have suspected anything like that. She was very quiet, sat there on the edge of the couch.
0: The only place she ever went was on Sunday afternoon. That's when Annie would go visit her eldest sister, Emma, with Annie's nieces. She'd go with Mary and Kitty. They'd pick her up, and they'd go to the
4: nursing home. But she, I n- never, never remember of her
0: going anywhere else. Cecile is shocked by all of this because she lived with Annie and she seemed a bit off-putting, but harmless. I, I just, I can't believe it. It's, it's unbelievable
4: because this lady was in, uh, I'd see her every day for two years. Now she loved cookies and she'd carry a bunch of cookies in her pocket and she'd eat cookies all day long, you know, just, she was quiet, just very, very quiet. Did for herself and kept herself clean. I'll have to say that. What do you mean? She was a very clean person for herself. You never smelled her. I mean, for an an elderly person and being by herself, she evidently took her bath while I was at work and everything, and had solid white hair, and it always looked so clean.
0: So was Annie Crawford a killer? Some people don't believe in coincidences in murder investigations, but I do. In my first book, Death in the Air, I write about serial killer John Reginald Christie who murdered at least six women in London in the 1940s and 50s. While he was killing them, a woman and her baby who were living two floors above him were found dead. Her husband, Timothy Evans, confessed. He was abusive and a raging alcoholic. He later recanted, but to no avail. He was eventually hanged. John Reginald Christie confessed to all of those murders after he was finally caught, including the murders of Timothy Evans' wife, Beryl, and her daughter, Geraldine. The public had always believed that Christie killed Beryl and Geraldine and that Tim Evans was innocent. It was too much of a coincidence, a serial killer and another murderer living in the same building at the same time, unaware that the other was guilty of something horrible. But I absolutely believe it because domestic violence was so pervasive in London at that time. So, is it possible that Annie was innocent, that all of those deaths were either unrelated or accidental? I asked author Alan Gotro to speculate a little bit about Annie's case.
2: It'd be interesting to find out if anybody else died of poisonings. Now, it probably would have been a family member. Right. I don't think she would have gone outside of the family, but I I don't think she relished in the attention, the the media attention per se, but I think she liked being kind of top dog in in the family that way.
0: I agree. I don't think she would have poisoned anyone outside of the family.
2: I think uh, there's a lot more deeper psychological issues there because later on in life, We don't know if she killed again.
0: You know, it's interesting because if you subscribe to Annie killing people in the family who she didn't like, she really did not like this woman at Mm. all. And she lived with them for a couple of years. But I said, did you ever get sick? And she said, no, nothing like that ever happened. I thought about that as my daughter and I finished our visit to the Crawford family's gravesite. You know, I can't even read the tombstone, but this... Here, let's look down here, babe, and then I think we're gonna have to go. They're gonna kinda kick us out a little bit. Have we looked down here? I don't think we have. After about 30 minutes, we finally found it. Hold on. This is a relative of theirs, because I've traced them. Come here, I recognize this name. And yeah, enjoy. this is, um oh, Crawford, this is it. That's it, that's it. Crawford, wow, we found it. Just in time, too. Just crazy. It's a few feet above the ground, and the name Crawford is etched on the coping on the front. And I was a little bit surprised at how ornate it was. Marble steps allow you to step up to the top. So this is where all four victims were buried. So they're here. They're all here. And some of their descendants are here. People who never knew them are buried here too. They chose to bury them in the same tomb. That's amazing. But there were more modern markers with other family member names. Okay, so Crawford, this is the name of it. We found and Crawford. These are the family members. Mhm. This was their family. These were their children. Oh, wow. Okay, hold on. Let me get some good photos. Here, hold this out of the way. There are at least nine family members in this grave, including the four Crawfords who died in 1910 and 1911. And then I found a piece of information in a local paper. Annie had purchased the coping for $200. That's more than $6,000 today. And that two hundred dollars didn't include the marble headstones and the steps and the upkeep. This is an expensive plot. So it looks like Annie Crawford spent a lot of money on this gravesite. Maybe Terence Fitzmorris is right. If Annie were a killer, then money didn't seem to be the motive, and perhaps it wasn't anger either. What's your impression of this story?
3: Well, that's a great. Obviously, that's a great story. You did great detective work there.
0: If she killed people for money, why not kill Aunt Mary? Because they didn't get along at all.
3: Yeah, Mary was the one that needed to go. And Gertrude, didn't touch them.
0: And Annie didn't get along with Cecile Leo either. And obviously, she never poisoned her. So the three people who Annie didn't like the most managed to survive while her parents and her two sisters died. Still, the whole thing is very off-putting to Cecile. I mean, if you were if you were someone hearing this story, what would you think about her nanny?
4: I'd be kind of afraid of her.
0: Luckily, you didn't know. I mean, I, what would that? That would have been a knockdown, drag-out
4: fight. When you think right, of it? I don't know that I'd want to move into the house with her. <laughs> you know, because Pat and I did. Dis- you know, we had a discussion.
0: How do you know that Pat even knew?
4: Well, see, now now that I don't, I can't tell you because I don't know myself how he knew, if, if he even knew.
0: Is there a chance he did not know about any of this?
4: Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I just cannot imagine, though, that I lived with him for 30 years and he didn't mention something about it.
0: Well, it sounds like that your husband was loyal to this family, obviously, to have this woman move in when he had just, it was, had just been
4: married the year before mm-hmm. seems like a very kind gesture to me. Yeah. Well, he was loyal to her, for true. But she loved him, though she loved Pat. I mean, there's no question about that.
0: After reading all of this and talking to relatives, I think it's clear that Annie Crawford was not an easy person to get along with. She was controlling and manipulative. She might have taken morphine, but it doesn't sound like she was an addict. She seemed to tolerate some people, but despised others. She could have been vengeful, but she didn't seem greedy. There were no other incidents after she moved to Texas that we know of. After visiting the grave, I do believe that the life insurance money went mostly to burials and services. Annie's quick reporting to life insurance agencies might have just been pragmatic considering how little money the family had. So, I don't think she murdered four people. As far-fetched as it seems, I think that Mary Agnes and Walter and Emma all died of natural causes. I think Elise begged Annie for morphine and Annie gave her too much and didn't want to admit it. I also think I could be totally wrong about all of this, And Annie Crawford was a murderer who got away with it. I asked Cecile Leo why Annie finally moved out of the house just a few years before Annie died. Annie was in her 80s at that time. After about two years,
4: we had observed she wasn't making the trip upstairs very well. She'd fall every now and then. And we had a space heater in the entrance. I had a year like, and had a space heater there. And she'd get up before everybody else did. And she'd light that heater. And this one morning, Pat and I were still, we were still sleeping, a bed, a, you know, upstairs sleeping. And we heard, boom. And Pat jumped up and he went, well, what, what had happened is that she would turn the the gas jet at the wall, then there was a hose that the heater was attached to, and she'd turn the gas on at the wall, and that gas would be just pouring out, and then by the time, and she was slow because she was in her 80s then, and by the time that she'd get to the heater and strike the match, well, that gas would all accumulate
0: (laughs) She could've blown herself
4: up. She could have. And start the house on fire, you know. Well, Pat ran downstairs this one morning when we heard this boom and he he said, Nanny, you don't turn it on at the wall and 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 he he didn't fuss at her. He he just kinda Reprimanded her a little bit and helped her up and everything. She was sitting on the floor. And I came, I was right behind him and all. And he said, Nanny's not getting around as well
0: as she used to. Annie moved out after that. She died in Port Arthur in 1972 at age 89. She outlived both of her remaining sisters. Just like Lizzie Borden, Annie died unmarried, with no children, no close friends— Her life was an enduring mystery. In the end, her family took care of her, but the Crawfords might not have really trusted her again. Gertrude had once told her sister Emma that if she were to become ill, to not let Annie take care of her, no matter how much Annie insisted. And one more thing. When Annie was finally forced to move out of Cecile's home, Cecile's husband, Pat, met with his two sisters. He and and Mary and Kitty had a little
4: discussion, and I remember Mary said, well, I know one thing, she's not going to come live
0: with me. Thanks for listening to this season of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. You can hear the trailer for our next season in one week. Next Monday. If you love a good, real ghost story, my new audiobook original, The Ghost Club, is available for pre-order now wherever audiobooks are sold. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my new book, All That Is Wicked, which is based on the first season of Tenfold War Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold War Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive Producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold War Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold War. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldwarwicked.com. Follow Tenfold War Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.